Yeah, good to have you here, whether you're joining us here in the house, online, via radio, wherever you are this morning. The Orchard, where we, our vision is love God, love people, where we keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's Jesus. Where we say it's fun to be us, and we also say there's room for everyone, including you. I want to tell you a few things this, that have been going on this week at the Orchard. They're pretty exciting. I got to talk to, you know, the, um, we have a kind of a sister church at the Orchard Vanuatu down in the nation of Vanuatu in the Pacific Islands. And I got to have a video meeting to, um, this week with Pastor James Nicholson. He's the pastor down there. And it was so cool to, to be through technology, talk to uh, our brother in Christ down there who was working um, to bring, as we, as we discussed, his goal is to bring people to, the, to Jesus and his love. Uh, whether they're in the town or the village, wherever they are. And so we are grateful for Pastor James. Also, here at the Orchard, man, things are, there are some great things happening. Our children's ministry with Pastor Stacy and all that she is doing. We have a, a MOPS program, which apparently is a program where moms can come and drop their kids off and get an hour alone. Um, with each other, not an hour alone, but like they can hang out together. Um, and then we have a, a, a homeschool group that meets for those of you who are homeschooling your kids. In our youth ministry, Jesse had he had a, a big group of kids on a, on Wednesday. They have, are forming their own band and singing, and it's, I, we got to be there and hear some of that. And then 15 students uh, declared their faith in Jesus Christ on Wednesday in our youth ministry. So that's a it's a good day. We got young adult ministry on Thursdays, and uh, growth groups are cranking and going. And one thing that you know is on my heart is Operation Christmas Child and all the shoeboxes. Now, we had about 450 shoeboxes that we gave out, and we're out pretty much. There's some left, um, but you can go to Walmart and get uh, your shoeboxes for 50 cents for the paper one or a dollar for the plastic one, but Orchard, our goal is 700. And so we have a packing party this Thursday at 6, 6 p.m. Right here in the building, packing party this, this Thursday at 6, pizza supplied, bring some items to pack for other people, bring some boxes, bring yourself, have some fun, and if you could, RSVP at OrchardServes at TheOrchardLife.com. Now, all that said, we have been in the book of John for almost a year. We declared last year that we're going we're gonna to elevate Jesus above all things and, and really take an intense look at his life as he lived out and embodied all that God is. And here we are in John 15 and 16. And remember, these are, these are his last words with his disciples before he's arrested. His final instructions to them before he is taken away on that side of the, on the, that side of the cross. And so as he begins to speak to them, he's already talked about the, the vine. He's already talked about some other things. But then he brings up this topic of persecution. Persecution and suffering. Now, persecution is defined as hostility due to someone's faith. Hostility due to someone's religious beliefs. And this includes expulsion from family or community, imprisonment, maltreatment, massacre, oppression, torture, execution. A lot of fun stuff in today's sermon. It's going to be a real, yeah, a real winner. But today, Jesus brings about this. He talks about these for a reason because he wants to prepare his disciples. He brings it up on purpose. And he says here in John 15, he, he tells them, he goes, hey guys, listen, if the world hates you, remember they hated me first. The world would love you if you were one of its own and you belonged to it, but you're no longer a part of the world. And why is that? Because in our faith in Jesus, he calls us to a higher way of living. He calls us out of the world into his kingdom to be a part of, of his community. He says, naturally, so since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. He has much more to say about it. And then in John 16, he says, I have told you these things, as he's communicating them, so that you won't abandon your faith. Like, don't be surprised when when these things happen. Don't abandon your faith when persecution and suffering comes. Guys, you just need to accept it. He says, for you will be expelled from the synagogue. You'll be kicked out of your churches. 
And the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a, ser- a holy service for God. Now, we actually can read in the book of Acts that this happened when Saul of Tarsus was commissioned and given authority to go forth and arrest, imprison, and torture and kill Christians in the name of God. The disciple, Jesus, disciples Jesus is talking to, they will face persecution this very night, probably within the hour of him telling them this. Uh, my, my, my guess is that they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right before his prayer where he sweats blood in his intensity. And, and this very night, they're going to flee in fear. And these young men, these young disciples, hearing Jesus say these things, they also have, not only do they not know what's going to happen this night, they don't know what's going to happen the rest of their lives. They don't know where this is headed. Jesus is preparing them for something in their life that is coming. And, and I read all this that Jesus was telling him, and he wasn't just talking about persecution that night. Like there was something else he was, he was preparing them for. And so I wanted to know what it was. So I researched all these disciples, even Matthias, the one that replaced Judas Iscariot. I did some research, and here's the truth. We don't know all the violence that they faced. We don't know all the imprisonments that they faced during their life. But we have some reports as to how these 12 disciples took their last breaths now, disclaimer, I'm going to be speaking plainly about how the disciples were martyred. This is more Game of Thrones than Disney+, Plus. okay? So I'm just going to tell you kind of what happened to these guys in, in their lives. Jesus had two disciples named James. James the Greater, as he is known, was the first of the disciples to be martyred. About 10 years after this night in the garden, he would be run through by a sword uh, by King Herod Agrippa on his orders. Now, James the Lesser, he traveled far and wide. He ministered to Syria. And the ancient historian Josephus reports that he was stoned to death. And when that didn't work, then they clubbed him. He was, cruci- he was martyred. He would not renounce his faith. And then we have Peter, Peter who walked on water. Bold Peter who was always putting his, his foot in his mouth to say the wrong thing or the right thing at the wrong time. Peter was crucified in Rome, but he refused to be crucified as Jesus was facing up. He thought that too great of an honor. So he said, crucify me upside down. And, and the tyrannical leader, Nero, was, was more than happy to oblige in A.D. 64. You see, Nero, he hated Christians. And he had a sponsored movement to find them, arrest them, and kill them. In fact, there are reports by Tacitus, a Roman historian, that Nero would have Christians brought into his private gardens, bound up and put on top of large poles so that he could burn these believers at night to illuminate his garden parties. That's the one who had Peter crucified. Then we have Thomas who went to India and he was killed after taking the truth of Jesus there. He, in India, he um, drew the hatred of the Hindu priests of Kali because so many people were leaving their faith and being baptized and coming to faith in Jesus that the priests of Kali there executed him. Philip ministered to Carthage in North Africa. He later converted the wife of Roman governor Hierapolis to faith in Jesus and that triggered um, his arrest and torture and he as well was crucified upside down, and it's reported that Philip, while being crucified upside down until he could drew his last breath, preached the entire time to those who were there to witness his death. Matthew, the former tax collector and author of the Gospel of Matthew, he took his faith to Persia and to Ethiopia, where legend has it that he was stabbed during a service on order of the king of Ethiopia. Bartholomew also, he went to India as well, but then he went to Armenia and South Arabia, he said that, it said that he led um, Polymius, the um, ruler of Arabia, to faith in Jesus. And that caused him to be uh, captured. 
and then he was flayed alive, which I won't go into what that means, before being beheaded. And then we have Simon the Zealot went to Persia to minister, who's, and he refused to deny Jesus. They gave him the choice, die or deny. They, they said, you need to worship the sun god and make a sacrifice to him. And when, when um, Simon the Zealot refused to, they sawed him in half. Matthias, who replaced Judas, he went to Syria. And tradition says he was burned at the stake for not renouncing his faith in Jesus. Andrew took the good news of Jesus to Russia. And it said there that he was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. And that he also preached more than a day until he could no longer breathe. Jude traveled extensively with Simon. And he was crucified preaching a crucified and resurrected Jesus when he would not deny his faith. And John, the author of the book that we've been studying for almost a year, he is one of the disciples, the only disciples who we believe died a natural death at an old age. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus, and when the uh, leader Domitian's persecution of the Christians happened, Domitian sent him, banished him to the Isle of, island of Patmos where he wrote Revelation. He escaped a martyr's death and likely died of an old age. It's incredible to see how these disciples took the message of Jesus to the world. It's incredible to see, to see how, how, they, how they responded because what we're going to read about in the next coming weeks and, and next year about how they acted upon Jesus' arrest, how they fled, we see them after the resurrection not shrinking back. We see a different boldness in them. And, it's, and here's the point. If, if someone tells you they're going to die and raise again, and they do, it means something. We see that they flee on this night, but later they face intense persecution, and they stand up boldly. See, they had no idea what was coming when Jesus said, you will face persecution. They had no concept of the, the decades and the, the imprisonments and the beatings that they would face. This is, this is how it spread. And in fact, it's been said throughout history of people who studied this that Christianity spreads um, the fastest and farthest when there is persecution against it. The Christianity, when, when it is under persecution, it, it goes the far, it spreads faster and farther. What is it about the message of Jesus that thrives under persecution? I, I read a book this week on this very question about the first three centuries and, and how it grew and all, all these things and investigated why there was such a quick spread of the gospel um, from these, this, this small group of people. Why was there such a big and quick spread, especially facing terrible, terrible circumstances and persecution? In, the er in many of the areas the disciples went to and ministered to, if you heard their message and you believed in Jesus, there would be dire consequences for you and your loved ones. They didn't just walk down an aisle, raise a hand, because that one decision that they would make to follow Jesus, any number of things could happen on the other side of that decision. You see, in many cultures, they would immediately be banished from their family and their community. All communication cut off. In other cultures, that decision to follow Jesus, you would make that decision knowing that it would result in your death if it were ever found out that you chose to believe that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing a preacher preach about Jesus or a neighbor tell you about Jesus and you feel that quickening inside you as the Spirit draws you and you, you feel that you want to make that decision, but you know on the other side, if I pray to receive Jesus in faith, on the other side of that prayer, of that decision, is imprisonment, a probable execution. My own family could turn me in. My own family would turn away from me. You see, there, there were real consequences for these early believers for their faith. 
And yet still, even with that being true, the message of Jesus spread like wildfire. The Holy Spirit exploded the growth across the globe. And in this book, it distilled um, the growth and spread of Jesus down to two main themes that in the, and that culture just spread. And the first is the idea that there was a loving God. That there was a loving God who wanted a real relationship with you. This was a new thought. That a loving God provided a way to himself through his son, his loving son, Jesus. The second theme was that this loving God provided you forgiveness and eternal life. Now, these truths in the message of Jesus were gripping in a world full of religions at the time that didn't have loving gods. You wanted to stay off the God's radar. And there was no forgiveness. There was consequence for your actions. When Jesus resurrected and his movement kicked off, there was nothing like it. And how could there be? This was God's divine plan for humanity, his ultimate plan and calling. And it spread in a way that nothing else has. So the church of Jesus was formed and it exploded even under intense persecution, and actually especially under persecution. But then something interesting happened in church history. Following Jesus was always an underground and and persecuted movement, and it was growing at a very high contagion rate. And suddenly, Christianity became legal and endorsed and state-sponsored in Rome. Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 AD, allowing Christian and Romans of all faiths to choose how they wanted to believe. Christians, for the first time, were allowed to partake in Roman civil life. And Constantine's new eastern capital, Constantinople, it had Christian churches alongside pagan temples. A first for Christians. 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius made, an official, made the official state religion of Rome. You see, following Jesus went from this underground meetings and houses to grand structures gilded with gold. It went from believers, all, all, every believer living and preaching and sharing their faith with those loved ones around them to a highly structured, privileged, and exclusive group of authorities. The Jesus movement began its transition from a movement to a monument. Previously, the decision to follow Jesus was one you would not take lightly because that decision would cost you for sure your reputation, your livelihood, and perhaps your entire life. You don't choose Jesus lightly when you would be kicked out of your family and community and reported to the authorities by your relatives. But suddenly, following Jesus wasn't a costly decision. It was as easy as as going to the nearest church and your attendance would mark that. There was no threat, there was no personal price tag, there was no sacrifice, and oftentimes there was no lifestyle change even needed. And before we dive back into John 15 and 16, I want to just pause here and reiterate something, that we need to go back to our biblical roots of being a Jesus movement instead of being a monument. A movement goes out in love. A monument simply stays and and invites and says, come to us. We have to get beyond this belief that we attend church. We have to get beyond this crippling view that church is a location. We have to get beyond this paralyzing perspective that church happens on Sunday mornings. Because as long as we believe that church is a place, it's no longer a movement of what could be. It's now a monument of what could have been. 
When a church is a building, our spiritual life is often measured by our attendance. Not our passion, not our conviction. When church is a service, our, our spiritual life is measured by how involved we are, or volunteering, and instead of how we're serving and loving our community outside this place. When we believe that a church is a, a place with a staff, well, then we no longer need to, to be sharing our faith to people around us. We have professionals. We pay to do that. The truth, Orchard, is that the church is a people. It's the truth is that we, the people, are the church, not the building, not the location. The truth is that, that we are the people of the movement of Jesus Christ. That was the birth of, uh, that's what Jesus birthed back in the day, a movement of people, not a building. That we are a people of the movement of Jesus, established by the blood of Jesus and grown by the blood of the martyrs who refused to deny their faith. We are the church. We I long for us to continue to move to be move into being a movement instead of a monument. So it's time. It's time we realize that, that we are the church. And instead of saying, like, uh, I go to church, say, I am the church. Where you go, the orchard is. If you're ever in a situation where somebody has a need of money or help or compassion, the orchard church is present there with you because you are on hand and God placed you there to help. It's time we step back into the organic design of the movement of Jesus and be the church to a world that needs us. Orchard, we're a people with a mission. And I read accounts all week of people who died for Jesus in our history, and I was deeply convicted, deeply convicted. See, there's a passion and zeal and boldness in our family history of church, these men and women who gave their life that I realized I am lacking I was thinking through all of these things. I was reading these accounts and these people put in these situations where will you die or will you deny? Family present, family a part of it. Will you deny Jesus or would you die for Jesus? And I had that question come up in my heart. Would I, would I die for Jesus? And, and I, I, yeah, I, I believe I would if I was given that choice. I, I hope I would choose to die instead of deny him. But, but I, so, so what about you? Would you die for Jesus? It's an interesting question to ask yourself. I, want, I ask you that because as soon as the answer began to roll around in my head, the Spirit of God immediately stopped me and corrected me. He said, Daniel, you're not asked to die for Jesus. Instead, you're asked to go, asked to go live for him. Go and live for Jesus. I mean, I never faced that decision of die or deny. I will leave that to when it gets there. Instead of saying, oh, I would die for you, Jesus, go and live for Jesus. Go and live as the saints before us have lived every day, spreading the message to those around them. They went to the ends of the earth, and perhaps, perhaps we can start at the end of our cul-de-sac. Perhaps we can start with our neighbor, someone we work with, someone we recreate with. In John 16, Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for events that are coming. And he says something in verse 33 that is relevant to us even today. He's just got done telling about the persecution they're going to face, the suffering that's coming. And he said, I've told you all this so that you, can have, you may have peace in me. Where is your peace? In him. That whatever you go through, if you face these moments, face these trials, your peace is in him and, and Jesus, all throughout John 15 and 16, he often juxtaposes suffering and sorrow with joy and persecution 
with peace. And he continues, here on earth you may have many trials and sorrows. Jesus lets us know, point blank, you're not living in a perfected world yet. In this world, and we get this, there are hardships, illnesses, sicknesses, breakdowns, trials, persecution, sadness, and there is sorrow. He, he tells it to us plainly. He's preparing them and us. And some churches, they're preaching that if you follow Jesus, you will be rich and healthy. And Jesus says, look, you're going to have trials and sorrows, but he doesn't leave them there. Listen, what Jesus doesn't want, he doesn't want you to be shocked when fallen things happen in a fallen world. He says this, here on earth you will face many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And this is another reason that Jesus' movement spread and continues to spread, especially under persecution, that in the midst of the sorrow and trial, we have a Savior who overcame it all. The, the, the world threw everything it could upon him, and, and he overcame it. And that same Jesus is present with you in trial, present with you in sorrow. So take heart. Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, overcoming all the world had, he walked out of a tomb. On the other side of that, he had victory in his hands. And that Jesus is with you. Jesus repeats in John 15 and 16 that on this earth there will be trials and sorrow, persecution for those who follow him. And I have to admit, I face trials and sorrow but I do not face that much persecution at all. I know our church history is, is full of it. It's full of persecution. But what about today? I don't face religious persecution. So I went down this rabbit hole of modern persecution. I wanted to see what it looked like. And I, I believe it would be good for us here today to hear just a bit of what's happening today around the globe. What our brothers and sisters are facing Newsweek, which is a secular publication, did a study on this and said, quote, numerically, Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any other point in history. I read so many modern, heart-wrenching stories this week in preparation. Sitting in my American church office, safe and sound, hearing and reading about our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world facing excruciating, terrorizing realities. A pastor in India was simply walking down the road to, to, take, to go back to his village and he was beaten to death by the followers of the most prominent form of Hindu nationalism so that the news would spread, so the people would know this is what happens if you follow in his footsteps. Churches raided mid-service, everyone taken outside where they had to watch the pastor and his entire family be executed and saying, if you continue to meet, next, one, next time it will be all of you. It's not just pastors. There's countries in the world where right now, this very second as I preach this, where if you believe in Jesus, the state law calls for your imprisonment. And other nations where faith in Jesus is an absolute death sentence. If anyone around you reports to you, if anyone knows that you have faith in Jesus and reports you to the authorities, you are executed along with your family. There's a ministry called Open Doors that tracks persecution. And they said this year alone, there are 50 nations, 50 nations that scored high on the, excuse me, scored very high to intense on the persecution level list. And the reports coming out of these countries isn't just death and torture, it's imprisonment for your faith. It's sexual violence against Christian women who are discovered. In Nigeria, there were 3,500 known Christian martyrs reported this year, and that's just the known reported ones. 
I read an interview by a Nigerian sister in Christ who said that an army came to, extremists came to their village, their city, and, and this, this year, and she said they came to their village, they gathered all the men in the town square, and one by one they walked down and said, are you an infidel or a Muslim? And she, she was there watching her husband, waiting to see how he would respond, knowing that their life would be different on the other side of this. Are you an infidel or a Muslim? And he said, I am neither Muslim nor an infidel. I believe in Jesus. And he knelt down and prayed. And that was the last she saw him. In China, violence against, against Jesus followers is rising, rising and thousands imprisoned for their faith. 3,088 churches this year have been attacked in 2021. In some countries, it's the government or dictator who's, who's, who's doing this. In others, it is, like in, in, in Bhutan, it's the Buddhist nationalists. Or in India, it is the Hindu nationalists. Where They're the number 10 ranked in persecution from Christians. They also tracked through COVID. COVID has been excruciating for our brothers and sisters overseas. In India, 80% of Christians reported they were refused medical aid and refused food aid um, and distribution simply because of their faith. If you were known to be a believer in these villages and, and aid came and they knew you're a believer, they would say, not you. And there are countless accounts of people walking many, while, many miles to another town or another village where they are not known to simply get the food or the medical help they needed for their family. I cannot imagine my child being denied a medical treatment simply because of my faith in my town. Now, now here's the question. Why do I tell you this? This isn't the most fun topic. Why do, I, why do we talk about this? First of all, it's important to know the conditions that our faith family lives in currently around this globe. I knew some of this. I did not know the scope and the numbers of all of it. It helps us to pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters who right now are in church hiding. Or as Dr. David talked about his friends in Afghanistan, he has teenage daughters and they are in hiding. Pray for them. It also, Orchard, helps us to appreciate what we have. That here in this very moment, as my voice goes out, we have the freedom to believe in Jesus without the threat of violence without the threat of imprisonment, without danger to our families. Our daughters are not, be take, are, not, are, are not being taken from us forcefully and married off because of our faith. Our sons are not being threatened because of our faith. Our homes are not under threat. At no point today did probably anyone in here wonder if that bump outside was the raid coming and it was over. We are blessed. We have freedom to believe in Jesus. We have freedom to proclaim Jesus. We have freedom to gather for Jesus in America, we don't face persecution like our brothers and sisters do. When I see what's going on in other nations, I think we get to admit we're not being persecuted. It's something we should be grateful for. But our love for God and our appreciation for our, 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 our love for God and our appreciation for our nation and the freedom we have, it should give us, it should, it should, it should result in something. I believe there should be something that comes out of that. You see, Orchard, our brothers and sisters, if they are around the globe boldly living, boldly sharing and declaring Jesus at the risk of death, what is stopping us? I read all this and I just realized I am without excuse. I'm without excuse. There's absolutely nothing external keeping us from sharing our faith. Nothing external. There's no law, no threat, no mandate, nothing externally that keeps me from sharing what I believe about Jesus, my faith with a coworker, uh, a friend, or a family member. And we have to admit we have it easy. We also have to admit we take it easy. 
I want to challenge you to begin to think like our early believers who love Jesus, or our, our brothers and sisters around the globe who are under these threats. They love Jesus, they live for him, and they were willing to share this life that they have found. And so I want to ask you, who is it in your life that you would, you would be asked to share your faith with? We're without excuse. Who would it be? Let, let's, let's start with one person. Who would it be that, that, that you would boldly share or invite Simply invite to come here on Sunday. In fact, this is, this is amazing. A statistic in America, it said 82% of those in America, if asked to attend church by a friend, would respond positively. It's interesting. I looked through there, and of the, of the percentage that didn't come, there was zero responded because of imprisonment or death. Like, there's no consequence to inviting someone or attending Last week I saw this, this new couple back over here for the first time they were here. I, after service, I went over there and I talked to them. And I said, hey, great to meet you. How did you end up here? And they said, well, we're brand new to the area. And on first Friday, we were walking down the street. Uh, we don't know anybody. And this couple came up to us and said, hey, you want to play cards with us? So we went to a local restaurant, got some drinks, and we were playing cards. And the night went on. We had a lot of fun getting to know them. And at the end of the night, they said, why don't you join us at the orchard at 10 o'clock? So here we are. And I was like, wow, it's, it, that, that's amazing. They had a great time, and, and then they showed up here. They were here again today. I heard that story. That is just real people doing real life and, and using their real life as an invitation. So who is it that you need to share or invite into your faith? Perhaps you're trolling Main Street looking for strangers to play cards with. Maybe that's your thing. I don't know. Or perhaps it's someone you work or play with. I want to just tell you a little secret. I just want to tell you a secret. Can you zoom in for a second right there? No one's going to flay you for inviting someone to the orchard. Okay? I promise you you're good. Okay? And so so, so, so I, what I want us to do is, listen, we have this freedom that others do not. But man, we take it for granted, don't we? I want to end with this. In John 16, Jesus says, Here on earth you will face many trials and sorrows. He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus promises that you're going to face trials and sorrow. And for some of us here today, you don't need me to tell you that. You get that. You're living in the midst of a trial or some sorrow right now. And here's the deal. Having done this job long enough, I know that many of us walk in here with smiles and handshakes, fist bumps, but there are vices taking deep root. There are sorrows crippling inside. There are trials and hardships that we are facing that our smiles don't show. And for many of you, you're in a trial that is harder than you'd hoped, it has lasted longer than you imagined, and it just hurt much more than you knew. And others of you sitting in sorrow from something that is broken in your life. Someone or something has been lost and you are experiencing unseen sorrow. If that's you today, Jesus has something for you. He says here, take heart. The word Greek means take courage. Have your heart be strengthened. And why? Because you have a Savior who has overcome imaginable trial and sorrow, executed, resurrected. And here's what happened. When he was resurrected, when that stone rolled away and he walked out, hope walked out of that tomb. That no matter what you're going through, there is hope because hope was resurrected no matter what has died in your life. When that stone rolled away, take heart. 
Because peace walked out of that grave. That no matter what rocky waters you're going through right now, in Jesus, peace walked out. And in him is a peace the world cannot produce. When that stone rolled away, take heart because there's, that's, that's when forgiveness and grace walked out of an empty tomb. Take heart because freedom walked out of that grave. Take heart because Jesus doesn't leave you in sorrow. He promises to be with you in your sorrow. He's working on your behalf in the trial. You don't see him at work, but he is at work in and through. He's building something within you in this trial, something new. Take heart because, listen, your life doesn't have to be defined by your sin. Take heart because your life is not defined by your past. Take heart because your life is not defined by your greatest or worst works. Your life is defined by the work of Jesus Christ. Take heart, whatever sorrow, whatever trial you are in. Take heart because you can walk in a new freedom. Take heart because you can forgive that person and release them. And in releasing them, release yourself. Take heart because in all things we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. In and through Jesus we are resourced. Take heart, Orchard. Whatever trial, whatever sorrow you find yourself, take heart today. After the service, we have something new we're doing where if you're in this place and you would like some prayer, we'll have people up front, we'll have people around here who are just going to linger. We want to pray over you. If you need some prayer, you need some heart and some brothers and sisters to pray into you, we'll pray for your healing, for your restoration, for whatever it would be. Just stick around. For those of you who are listening online or, or radio or TV, please email us your prayer request at prayer at theorchardlife.com. We would love to pray for you. Orchard, take courage, take heart. As we go into communion and as we hold the elements of a Savior who courageously faced torture and execution out of love for us so that we can experience salvation, so that we can experience the freedom and forgiveness and grace and love and power and peace that he promises us. So the first thing we do when we hold the element, the, the symbols of his blood and body, before we say, we just say, thank you. Thank you that you took heart and you went to the cross so that I don't have to. Thank you. And then spend a few minutes, seconds, whatever it be, just doing business with him. What do you need to ask forgiveness for? What do you need to, to work? Just ask him those things. This is our moment to, to have an, my, my, my prayer every Sunday is not that you hear good music or, or hear good preaching. My prayer is that you have an encounter with the living God. And so this, 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 this few minutes here in communion, that's where I'm praying he speaks to you. Take heart, Orchard. Let's go to communion.